And please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16 and verse 13. You can find this on page 1325 in the Pew Bible. Uh, We have come at long last to the end of the book. We started this series in February of last year. This is the 39th sermon, if you're keeping track. But it always feels good to get something completed. And oftentimes you come to the end of one of these letters, it seems like uh, Paul is giving some uh, instructions here or there, saying hi, saying bye, this kind of thing. And we tend to think this is kind of mundane details that aren't significant. Uh, But in fact, we can learn a lot about the church, about the Lord, uh, through these little details. And so as we look at this, we again see Paul's wonderful uh, biblical realism uh, accompanied by his great hope in the Lord. So let's give attention now. We'll begin at verse 13 and we'll read down to the end of the book. This is God's word. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And there we'll end the reading of God's word, and we'll end the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, with a major ground war going on in Europe currently, and various other hotspots around the world, it's unlikely that anyone who's going into the military goes into the military not realizing that there is a real possibility of facing combat, of facing enemy bullets. This was not always the case. In fact, there was an unusual period of time, and perhaps I'm well aware of it because it covered the time that I was in high school and college. Uh, From the end of the Vietnam War until the first Gulf War in the early 90s, where there, were, there really were no conflicts going on. And, and, there, and there were soldiers who could serve uh, without really much realistic thought that they were going to be facing enemy bullets. And I remember quite well in the first Gulf War when uh, soldiers started to protest that they were actually going to be sent into harm's way. And they said, hey, you know, we're not, when we signed up for this, uh, this was not going on. I, I, this is not what we agreed to do. And, and, you know, at the time, people were sort of laughing, like, wait, why are, why are we spending money and, and training you to be a soldier if you're never going to actually face combat? That's sort of in the, in the definition of being a soldier. And so it, it's easy to kind of see how that's ridiculous. But the fact is that we as Christians, all, all, 
almost uh, are always tempted to, to, to have a similar type of thought process about what it means to, to be a Christian. Because Jesus said, and this uh, quotation is in your outline, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said the Christian life is a life of death to ourself, daily dying to ourself. It's not something we go into to make my life better or easier or, or more interesting. It's, it's, it's a daily process of dying to self. And this can be very difficult in the setting uh, of a world that's hostile to the faith. It can be very difficult even in the church where we have to work with others who have different ideas about things and may not approach situations the same way. And so we have to be very careful about this temptation to, uh, to approach the Christian life like these soldiers were uh, back in the 90s. Wait, this isn't what I signed up for because the Bible makes it clear that this is in fact exactly what you and I have signed up for. A life of daily dying to self a life of opposition, a life of faithfulness in the midst of a hostile environment. And so Paul comes as he's closing this letter to these believers in Corinth, and he wants to give them this last bit of instruction. He wants to tell them that they're in a battle, but that their greatest resource for the fight is the love of Jesus Christ. And this is true for you and me as well. You're in a battle. The greatest resource you have access to is the love of Jesus Christ. And you and I need to learn to rest in and to live by that love of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to follow along, there's a, an outline in the uh, bulletin that we'll be following. Now, children, uh, I'm hoping you'll continue your wonderful picture drawing. And I've enjoyed your pictures. Zuri, I've, I've enjoyed your pictures as well, too. So even the older, uh, the older young people are contributing, and it's very good. But in this picture, you might draw a picture of soldiers that are battling. But I want you to listen for what Paul says uh, our, our weapon of choice is and how we are to, to, to fight for the kingdom of Christ. The first thing I want us to notice as we start looking at the passage is that being a Christian is a lot like fighting in a war. And we see this in verse 13 of our text. Paul begins, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. These are four terse commands, second person plural, right? So you all, these are commands. And, and the idea is that there is to be a determined effort at these things. And one commentator notes, these are the kinds of commands that a general might give to his troops. Um, they are to be alert. They are to be on guard for the enemies that are always out there ready to pounce. And we've seen a lot of these as we've gone through the book, right? There are these Greek and Roman ideas in the culture that are hostile to them that, that are going to cause them problems. There's infighting that's happening in the church. There are ego trips. There are divisions there's this temptation to judge others in the church or to abuse your Christian liberty. Uh, they've, they've been tempted with idolatry and a self-serving use of their gifts and a lack of love for others and greed. And we could go on and on with the things that were tempting them, which are also tempting us in our day. These were challenges, and they are challenges for Christians serving the Lord. So they're to be on guard against these kinds of things. But in addition... It says that they are to be brave, that they are to be strong. 
In fact, some of your translation may say that the, the, what's translated brave in my translation is in the original language to act like men, uh, to, to man up as, as a, of sorts. And of course, here it's talking about uh, the, the character traits of being steadfast and being faithful. This is the idea in the midst of a hostile culture. Josh, this, and, and I, this is why we read from Joshua chapter 1 earlier in the service, because you see uh, Paul actually using the language of Joshua 1. I put verse 9 uh, in the bulletin there as a cross-reference. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Paul is very much instructing them uh, to be brave in the face of the challenges they face. I don't know if you saw the Babylon Bee had a headline this past week. Underground Christians in China pray for all the American Christians being persecuted by Disney. See? All right, it's, it's meant to be ludicrous, right? Because uh, th- this is the idea that, uh, w- w- yeah, we're disappointed. Disney's gone woke. But uh, it's not like we're being locked up or not are being uh, surveilled constantly or that we can't meet freely and uh, all of our communications are being monitored and things like that. And one of the things that's really fascinating, it seems to me that there is an inverse relationship between the extent of real persecution and the amount of complaining that goes on. I, I haven't done a scientific study, but what I know is when I talk to believers in China that are facing legitimate persecution, uh, the complaining is very little. And we continue to try to ask Samuel and Cherry how they're doing, and their answers are mostly positive, mostly positive. And uh, it, it is astounding when we recognize that Christians in the West have, by and large, been so pampered in some ways, and we should be grateful for this, that, uh, we don't have a clear idea of the battle we're in, but the believers in other parts of the world, they, they don't need to be reminded that they're in a battle, that this is a fight, because they're facing it constantly. And, and so the problem with us is because we lose sight of the fact that it is a battle, we, we get extremely comfortable, then we're, we're not in a good position to handle challenges and difficulties as they come along. The Bible actually tells us this is the prevailing motif until Jesus comes again. I put uh, Revelation 12, verse 17, because it's really clear here. It's, yes, it's, it's figurative language, but the description is the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's a description for the whole period of time until Jesus comes again. The great serpent, the devil, is making war against the woman. And in this vision, it's the church and her offspring, those who would serve and love Jesus. This is the situation on the ground. And we always need this reminder because, as Paul says here, you need to be on guard. You need to act like men and women of God who you are. You need to be strong and courageous for this fight. So being a Christian is like fighting in a war. Secondly, to fight effectively, you need to submit to and respect your leaders. So Paul goes on 
in verse 15, I urge you, brethren, and there's this parenthetical. He talks about the household of Stephanus and that they were early converts in Achaia, that they've devoted themselves to the ministry. Then in verse 16, he comes off of that parenthetical. What is he urging them to do? That you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. This is what he's saying to them. They, they, they need to submit to those who are in authority over them. That could be translated to be subject to. And furthermore, this goes on in verse 17 um, to, to mention the coming of Stephanus, the same man, with two other men, Fortunatus and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So it seems like these men may have been the ones who carried Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's likely that they interacted with Paul, talked to Paul, and even perhaps shared uh, some extra information that wasn't in the letter that the Corinthian church had written to Paul. I put, uh, or actually it's not in your cross-references, but if you were to flip back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, 18, um, Paul says, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So Paul not only had this letter to work with, that he was hearing reports, probably some from these men. And you can imagine when this is read out to the Corinthian church as they're assembled, and uh, he says, I hear there are divisions among you, that, that everyone's turning around and saying, why did you tell them that? Right? Because how else did he find that out? And Paul's saying, no, these men need to be respected. You need to recognize them. You need to honor them as those that God has put in leadership in the church. And as he says there, all those who serve in this ministry. Now, I know I have mentioned to you before that uh, my, uh, my grandfather served in World War II in uh, the 3rd Army. But it was never the 3rd Army uh, when he talked about it. It was always Patton's Army. Even though my grandfather was, uh, he was a doctor, he, he, was, he ended up serving in a medical uh, MASH kind of units in France after D-Day, he revered General Patton, as did all the men who served in that army. And uh, we certainly are not to idolize human beings, but we would acknowledge it's, it's far better if those in the service respect and follow their leaders. Because when that doesn't happen, chaos results. And we need to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is our great general. And that in his wisdom, he raises up leadership. And he does this in all kinds of right? He does it in the home. And he gives fathers responsibilities. And he gives mothers responsibilities. And he does it in the church where he raises up elders and pastors in leadership positions. He does this in the society as well. And so it's a reminder here. Paul is telling them, as you're in this battle, remember to respect and to follow your leaders. Jesus had raised up Stephanus as one of the leaders in this particular church. And Jesus has done something similar in our church. One of the things I am very grateful for about the polity of our denomination 
is the fact that the pastor has no more authority than any other elder in the church. That is a tremendous comfort to me. And I am a member of this congregation. I'm not a member of the presbytery. That's how some Presbyterian churches do it. I am not a member of somebody somewhere else. I am a member of this church. I am under the authority of the elders of this church. And these are men that I would trust my soul and, and that of my family to willingly, joyfully. That's a gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what's our response? Uh, the author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. This, this task, this responsibility over your souls that the elders have, what does it say? It says that we should be under them in such a way that it's joyful for them. Not that it's grievous for them, but that it's joyful for them. And of course, this doesn't mean blind allegiance. This means principled submission. This is what makes the church effective in this battle that we are in. So to fight effectively as Christians, you must respect and submit to your leaders. Thirdly, we see here, you also need to remember that you're not alone. Uh, he says in verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Now remember, Paul's writing this letter from Ephesus. Paul spent several years ministering in Ephesus, and he was so effective in that ministry that there are churches planted all over what's, that was modern, that would be modern day Turkey, but that was called Asia or Asia Minor in those days. And we know from the book of Revelation that there are at least seven different churches in that area, but uh, the, the, that doesn't include the church in Colossae. So uh, there's many churches in this area. So when Paul greets them uh, from the churches in Asia, he's reminding them they're part of this larger group of churches. And it really is remarkable because, remember, the church started as this small group in Palestine. And now in these decades after Christ had uh, ascended to heaven, you have believers now in all these different parts of the empire and the church is spreading and growing. And Paul wants them to know they're connected uh, to these other believers. And he goes on, he, he, he gives greetings from Aquila and Priscilla, uh, two particular people with the church that is in their house. So they were probably hosting a group that was probably about 50 people. Uh, so they're, they're sending their greeting. Uh, then he says, all the brethren greet you. So there he's probably talking about the, all of the house churches in Ephesus. So that would be one church, and they're meeting in different locations, meeting in houses, and they're sending their greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet them heartily in the Lord. These, remember, these people were originally from Corinth, and they had traveled with Paul to Ephesus. And so they're writing back. They know these people. They're, they're former colleagues and church members, and they're encouraging one another. And then uh, he rounds out this by saying, greet one another, right? So these are all greeting you. Now you greet one another with a holy kiss. So uh, an Eastern greeting of affection and uh, a sign that we are uh, part of one community together. Now, uh, most of you here have gone through the process of church membership uh, I, I realize there's quite a few of you visiting with us who haven't gone through that process, process, but part of that process after you take a membership class and come and meet with the elders is in the meeting with the elders, we actually uh, discuss some different aspects of this. 
And then when we make the decision to receive people in, we actually have them take the vows of membership with the elders. So what you see out here, this is like a ceremonial. This is a, this is a representative of what's already happened. It's a public profession of faith that goes with something that's already happened in a meeting with the elders. But after that, when we, we take the vows, we pray for our new members, then we have what has sometimes jokingly been referred to as the secret handshake. It's not a secret handshake. It's called the right hand of fellowship. So we offer the people, the new members, the right hand of fellowship. Now, why do we, is that just like, hey, it's just like giving a high five? No, it, it, is, it is symbolic to say, you are one of us now. And to this point, you may have been saying, oh, I notice you guys don't use instruments in your worship, or you guys do this, or you guys, and now with the handshake, it becomes us. This is what we do. This is who we are, that we are a part of. And one of the things I think that we could do a better job of, and we're trying to work on, is to help people realize not only are you joining this body, you are joining a denomination. You are, you are joining a group of around 100 churches. It's not a large denomination all over uh, North America. And that that actually means something too. That we are not just one congregation that's somehow, against all odds, been persevering here for 200 years in Monroe County. But that we are a part of a larger group that has supported us and encouraged us. So this is why we try to pray for different congregations in our denomination. We try to pray for mission work that we're doing. We try to update the congregation. We try to give you reports after we have meetings so that you know what's going on. We have our young people going to youth events. We try to encourage the, the conferences that happen. Uh, even a subscription to the denominational magazine is a good way to have a handle on things that are happening. And, and you see why this is so important? Because we need to remind ourselves we are not alone. That's what Paul was doing. You are not alone. Sometimes it feels like you're alone. And you're not. And you need to recognize you have like-minded brothers and sisters all over the world worshiping the Lord, praying for you, seeking your well-being. And that is an important thing. I cannot tell you how encouraging it is. We took a collection uh, to support a, f a family that we're, uh, that we're very close to that's in East Asia. And you have given so far over uh, $3,000 significantly over that just from the collection we took last week we're still uh, gathering and we will give you a final number but what a tremendous encouragement not just that the the support is there but that a clear indication that there are others who care about you in this world where sometimes it seems like we're alone this is a tremendous blessing to us to remember that we're not alone we also need to remember and Paul points them in this direction that ultimate victory or defeat comes down to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to our own efforts. So in verse 21, Paul says, this salutation with my own hand, Paul's. So what's been going on for this whole letter is Paul has been dictating to a man named Sosthenes, who's mentioned in verse one of chapter one of the book. And Paul's been dictating the letter. And so he's been writing it out. Now, Paul picks up the pen himself. And so the people who are reading it, they can see that the handwriting changes now. And Paul's saying to them, I am writing this part in my own hand. So this is putting a personal touch, a personal finish on it. 
And it's remarkable what Paul says in these few lines. Look at verse 22. I I think it's staggering. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Not what I was expecting. Not not what you're expecting to close out a letter. And and, and I think it's, it's incredibly instructive to us. It's a solemn warning. And when he says a curse there, he's using the Greek word anathema, which means devoted to destruction, like given over to destruction. That is calling for someone's eternal damnation and judgment. And, and that's a strong, strong warning. Recognize Paul has been addressing serious problems in the congregation. And he knows that in their congregation there are some people who do not love Jesus Christ. And sadly, that's probably true in every congregation in the world. The congregation is a mixture of people who love Jesus and people who don't love Jesus. Our prayer is for God's ongoing work, bringing us all to the point where we can say we love Jesus. But this is the dividing line. This is the issue. Not who you voted for, not who put together, how put together your family is, not whether you've memorized a certain amount of scripture, but do you love Jesus? That's what Paul says is the difference between heaven and hell. Do you love Jesus? And that's something we need to ask ourselves. Do I love Jesus? Because what Paul's saying here, if we don't love Jesus... We are doomed. Charles Hodge, in commenting on this, and I I put this in your bulletin, if Christ is not only truly God, but God manifested in the flesh for our salvation, if he unites in himself all divine and human excellence, if he has so loved us as to unite to our nature, our nature to his own, and to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on the cross, that we might not perish but have eternal life, then our hearts must agree how just is the curse pronounced even against ourselves if we do not love him. So Hodge is saying there, if we consider who Jesus is, what he has done for his people, how he stands with his arms outstretched, ready to receive us, and yet we do not embrace him as our Lord and Savior. We ourselves will say we are rightly judged for rejecting his love. And and that is a a heavy truth that Paul wants them to understand. But he follows that word of judgment. The very next word he speaks, it's translated here, O Lord, come. And this is the word Maranatha that you maybe have heard. Uh, It's an Aramaic word. And that word became sort of a call word for the early church, that they would greet one another. And it's a prayer that Jesus would come, that he would hasten the day of his return. Because those who love Jesus want Jesus to come back and, and to be received in all his glory and to have everything in this world put right This is how the whole Bible ends in Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the same idea. Come Lord Jesus. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And notice in here in 1 Corinthians, that same emphasis on the grace of Jesus. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is a reminder. We are called to love Jesus, but none of us is able to love Jesus on our own. That in itself is a gift of God's grace. The ability to love him, the ability to see him as he truly is, that's a gift of Jesus' grace. He graciously comes to us, he wakens us, he shows us who he is. And that's, that's the issue. Not whether we will do it well, whether we will be brave, but whether Jesus loves us and we love him. You can hear the pundits uh, speculating on whether the Ukrainians will win the war with Russia. And it seems pretty clear that there is no way the Ukrainians are going to win the war, at least if they're left to themselves. They don't have the resource. The only reason they're in this so far is because they're being supplied by other countries and because other countries with nuclear capabilities are in the background keeping the Russians from using their nuclear weapons. But if it was just the Ukrainians against the Russians and nothing else, there's no way the Ukrainians stand a chance. And the same is true in this battle that the church is in. This is why the book of Revelation, again, it pictures the devil as a giant, uh, massive, seven-headed, fire-breathing dragon. The point is that there's a power that the church is facing against it that's far more powerful, terrifying, cunning. And if the church is left on its own, there's no way the church can win. But of course, we know the church isn't left alone. And the story of the Bible is the fact that Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we were talking about this in the... um, adult Sunday school class this morning, looking at some of the passages in Ezekiel. What's really fascinating is that, you see this in the book of Revelation, there's all this buildup to this final battle, all the enemies of God surrounding the church. The church is outnumbered. And so, you know, the way we do our stories, then uh, we're gonna commit, you know, 40, 50 minutes of the movie to the next to the battle scene and all the details of how we actually win the battle against all odds. And that's not how the Bible does it. The Bible sets the stage and then it's as if God just snaps his fingers and the battle's over. I put one of the examples in your outline, Revelation 20, verse 9. This is the enemies of God. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So that, there it is, this great horde that's described. They totally surround God's people. The second half of the verse is the whole battle. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And that's by design so that we understand this is not like a toss-up. Who's going to win this? This will be close. This is to show the overwhelming power of God, that, it's, that it, the, the answer is not in doubt at all. It's a foregone conclusion. And we need to rest confidently in this, that Jesus Christ has already dealt the devil, the death blow, and it's just a matter of time till Christ comes again and completely obliterates all that's evil in this world. So the battle is his And our confidence has to be in him. And this is where we have to ask ourselves, do I love Jesus? Because that is our hope 
in this fight that we are in. The ultimate victory comes down to Jesus. And in fact, finally, it is the love of Jesus that is your ultimate resource for this fight. So Paul's conclusion is a very fitting end to the letter. I put in the outline uh, an, uh, an outline of the structure of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, if you look at that. So after the introduction, he addresses uh, things that he's heard from members of Chloe's household who visited him. And so he talks about divisions in the church, opposition to Paul, and then struggles with immorality in the church. And then he responds to this letter that they've, been, that they've brought to Paul with these different questions and issues. So he talks about confusion they're having over marriage and divorce, food offered to idols, so there's Christian liberty issues there, how to behave in worship, the use of spiritual gifts, the resurrection, and the collection for the saints and his, his further plans. And then we come to this conclusion. And all, on top of all of these problems, these people have also, some of them, turned against Paul himself. And yet what we've seen as we've worked through this letter is Paul patiently pastorally works through these issues one by one. He treats them with respect. He treats them as adults. He confronts them where that's needed. He encourages them. But there's been one theme throughout this over and over again that he has emphasized, and and he devoted an entire chapter to it in chapter 13, and that is love. Love is the answer to all of these problems that they're having. And that's how he ends this section of the letter. Verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. And verse 24, my love be with you in Christ Jesus. And in both of these places, as we've seen throughout the letter, that love is the agape love, that that obscure Greek word that the Christians took and made it uniquely their own as a description of the self-sacrificial love of God for people who did not deserve it. And that's the love that the Christians saw in their Lord and exhibit to one another. Sacrificial love for those who don't necessarily deserve it. And as verse 24 said, it is a love in Christ Jesus that Paul is is talking about and this is the answer this is the answer for their divisions this is the answer for their personality cults for their struggles with immorality for the problems they're having with marriage uh, for their temptations with their pagan culture uh, for the chaos that they have in their worship is to love one another as Christ has loved them and it's because Jesus had shown them his perfect love. He came from heaven to rescue them, to regenerate them, to change them. That's the love that they're called to show to those around them. And that's the same thing that will help us as we seek to serve the Lord, to love in the way that Jesus loved us, to love the truth, to love one another. Yes, that requires confrontation at times, but to come alongside to bless one another. And, and, and this will help us to love our spouses as we should, to avoid factions in the church, to help uh, us from making some people feel like second-class citizens, and on and on we could go. Now recognize Paul's final word to this church. This is a church that has caused Paul many sleepless nights. And he says to them, my love be with you 
in Christ Jesus. This letter is a testimony of Paul's love for this church, that he has not given up on them, that he knows that God is able to work and to change people. And, and you understand, this is flowing out of the fact that Paul has experienced that love himself. Because Paul was a man who persecuted Christians. He was responsible for breaking up families, for seeing people arrested, for seeing people murdered for their faith. And he says earlier in this letter, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Christ saved him from that life. And Paul knows the power of Christ's love. And that's the thing that's behind this. Christ's love for Paul, enabling Paul to love this church with all their problems, to hope the best for them, to believe the best for them, and to minister to them out of that love. And Paul's calling them, as he's calling you and me, to embrace that love from Jesus, but then to love one another in that same way, putting our own interests aside to love as we have been called to love. So Paul reminds you, you're a soldier in a battle. Your life will have challenges. You will face opposition. But God's given you leaders who love you. He's given you fellow believers who fight with you and who love you. And above all, he's given you his son who loved you perfectly and who enables you to love others. That is the greatest power on earth. That is the greatest resource we have. So remember that as you seek to fight for Jesus and for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to the end of this book. And we thank you for the theme that we have seen throughout this book. As Paul has dealt patiently and painstakingly with this church a true church with real Christians in it who had lots and lots of problems and confusions. And we pray, Lord, that we would see in these words a word for ourselves, that the thing that matters is Jesus' love for us, and that in that love, he enables us to love him and to love others. We thank you that we're a part of a church we thank you that we're a part of a church that doesn't have these, uh, all these problems this church had. But we know that there's constant temptation, there's constant challenges we face. And we pray for your ongoing help, that we would grow in our love for our Savior, that we would grow in our love for one another and for the broader church, and that you would be pleased to use us as your instruments in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let's uh, sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 31, Selection D. And this is a psalm that calls us to love the Lord. You see stanza 10, Oh, love the Lord, you godly, the Lord the faithful keeps. Uh, we thank him that he provides for us and then you see how it ends so then be strong and steadfast and let your heart be brave all you who wait with patience wait on the Lord to save so as Paul had called us to be brave to be courageous we recognize that we get strength from the love of our Savior let's stand and sing our praise <laughs>